Hi, everyone. I'm Carla Bailo, the president and CEO of CAR. And today on our podcast, we're going to talk about the infrastructure bill, the crisis in the workforce, and then we're going to end with some dialogue about the inflation that we're seeing. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Carla Bailo. Welcome to the CAR Podcast. Today, joining me is Bernard Zwicky from Research. And as usual, there's a ton happening in the automotive industry. But today, I think we're going to focus on kind of four topics, three clearly related to auto and one just in general. And the three topics that we're going to talk about is the infrastructure bill, Um, For starters, what's included in there? Where is it in terms of, you know, passing the the House and, you know, what's likely to be changed as it goes through? Talk a little bit about the workforce crisis that's hitting everywhere right now on a global basis. I was amazed to see, you know, workforce isn't just here in the U.S., it's in China, it's in Malaysia, it's everywhere where we're seeing these shortages in so many different areas. And as a result of that, the supply chain crippling is becoming just such a huge issue in the automotive industry. And, you know, kind of the last topic, which is affecting everybody in everybody's pocketbook, is this 3.6% inflation just since July. I mean, holy cow, we're talking about raises this year being in the 3% range. We're not even going to cover inflation at this rate. So what does that mean for the industry? What does it mean for our economy overall? So, Bernard, the infrastructure bill, it, act, it passed the Senate. It passed the House by a slight margin. Did it pass in full as it was written, or were there a lot of amendments? Do you know? So, Carla, we've got progress. Um, the issue really is that we are not going to see Uh, the final package of elements that will comprise the full infrastructure environment that we're going to have until this bill makes its way through Congress. Then we have a reconciliation bill uh, that is likely going to include a much bigger dollar amount that remains to be seen. Uh, And so what is happening is we're getting kind of a piecemeal look at the various elements uh, that we can expect as the final total outcome. Uh, Of course, the situation in Afghanistan right now is really throwing things into a little bit of uncertainty in terms of timing. Uh, uh, there's just, such just a, Everybody's attention is focused on absolutely. Afghanistan and not on all the other surrounding Absolutely. Um, and so that will serve to, I think, delay things a, a little bit, uh, but it's only going to be a delay. Ultimately, these things are going to, to be resolved and to be seen through. Uh, for the industry, for the automotive industry, you know, what I really think is, is kind of uh, finally maybe getting answered to a certain degree uh, is for a long time we've had this chicken and egg conversation about electric cars and infrastructure. And, you know, do you need a certain amount of electrified cars before the infrastructure gets there? Or if you just built the infrastructure, would the cars materialize? Uh, and so right now, the latest uh, dollar amount that I've seen is about $7.5 billion dollars that we expect for a charging infrastructure. Uh, And that at least will help alleviate some of this 
uh, issue that, that we've had for such a long time. Uh, and I think, frankly, you know, as this infrastructure gets put in, you know, then we're going to start really getting some clear answers to the question of consumer acceptance. You know, what does it take? Is, is it uh, a better vehicle or is it access to charging stations? Yeah, and I read an interesting article this morning by the director of the Ohio Turnpike who said he's going to take all of their service plazas and he's going to turn those stations into, let's just call it propulsion stations. With Currently they have you know diesel and, and gasoline and then they're going to have a plethora of charging stations. And, you know, when you go into one of those service plazas, you've got arcade games you've got places to eat I, they don't have movie theaters yet they're probably coming who knows but you know it makes a lot of sense to be able to to have a one-stop shop like that but my understanding is you cannot do anything like that on state land especially in Michigan and in maybe other states as well and I just keep thinking in the back of my mind wouldn't it make more sense for, you know, it's the long distances that people have this angst. Can I get up north? Can I, you know, get to see my parents? Can I go on this camping trip and be able to stop anywhere? And, you know, most people hauling a trailer or going away for the weekend, unless they need fast food, are stopping at a rest stop. And, and there's things to do there and walks you can do and ways to pass the time. I just... In the back of my mind, I wonder if we shouldn't think about that again. It's kind of an antiquated rule. Shouldn't we think about maybe changing that, um, at least here in the state? But then let's talk a little bit about where are we going to put these things? You know, uh, you know, the worst thought I've ever heard is we're just going to equally space them. You know, we're just going to have them every few miles, X number. But... Here at CAR, we've done studies that, that lead us to believe that there are certain parts of the state and certain parts of the country and cities that are going to need higher density than others based on affordability, based on need and driving um, situations. I don't know if you were part of those studies or not, but doesn't that make a lot more sense that we really take a look at this before we just start throwing charging stations around? Yeah, you know, absolutely, Carla, it does. Um, and a few things come into play, but uh, the throughput, you know, if you think about number of pumps at a gas station versus number of charging points at a charging station, your throughput is going to be very, very different because of the extra amount of time that it takes to charge a vehicle, which means not only does on an individual basis the driver have to wait longer for a charge, but that means you may have to wait that much longer before one frees up. And, you know, on a given day, uh, you can service, uh, you can charge or uh, refill many fewer vehicles with the electric approach than you can with gasoline. Uh, you know, so what you mentioned earlier with the service plazas, providing other reasons for that driver to spend some time, I think is going to be much more important. And it's a little bit of a, a mind shift, you know, away from what we're used to with gas stations where, you know, a convenience store is kind of all you need because that's a very different duration. 
Uh, and I think two things will play into that. One, what is available at the charging station itself? You know, set a service plaza. That's kind of all you've got. You can't really walk to anywhere else. So what's built into that facility is what you're dealing with. Uh, in other cases, you know, people may choose a charge point based on what else is in that few block radius around town that they could also get to. Uh, and so, you know, in a way, you could add congestion to places that are already congested because, you know, they give the user that much more access to things that they'd want to do. Um, but again, consumers are not always rational. You know, we, 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 we see so many examples of where a given vehicle would work for the vast majority of the population, but they don't buy based on, you know, just what their needs are, what will typically be their use case. People tend to buy on a more exaggerated version of reality uh, that they have in their heads regarding their needs or vehicle capabilities that they're likely to use. And I think we're going to see some of that uh, mental aspect into uh, charging usage and how much people feel safe in terms of distance between stations uh, that they think they, they can drive and still feel like that trip is viable. You bring up a really interesting point. You know, it, cars have always been an emotional purchase, right? They kind of represented you or were an appendage of you. I, I don't know if you saw the new hot pink Jeep Rubicon that's only being offered through through November. I saw it this morning and I quickly, you know, showed it to my husband. I said, look at this. And he looked at it and he goes, who is going to buy that? And I said, I would. I would love to have this. It's, you know, hot pink, one of my favorite colors. And, you know, it's, it's flashy. It's stand out. You know, somebody's, and that would be emotional because I certainly don't need a Jeep Rubicon. No way. But just looking at it made me have this desire. Gee, I, I kind of like to have one of those, you know. So are we going to lose that, do you think, with electric vehicles? Or do you think now, I, I kind of think that now that we're coming out with, you know, the Mach-E and... You know, the Tesla is already a performance vehicle that it's really going to change the mindset. So EVs still can be, in a, a, you know, an emotional purchase as well. Are we are we are we counting on the sensibility of people too much? <laughs> yeah. No, you know, Carla, I, I really believe just based on uh, observed behavior and trends so far that as we electrify the vehicle and as we automate the vehicle, um, in the consumer mind, it seems to be shifting a little bit more uh, to electronics territory. You know, and likewise, people are very, very picky about the kind of phone they use, the kind of tablet and other electronics that they use. You know, we're talking a bit of a different procedure in terms of making that decision than appliances for your home, right? Uh, these are goods with which you interact on a much more personal level. Uh, and there, in those consumer electronics, there is a high degree of expectation of rapid changeover, you know, differentiation between individual brands, you know, th there's different um, stigma around certain brands and so on. Uh, but I think a lot of the sensitivities are ramped up to, to a higher level. Uh, and I'm really interested to see what happens to the industry as consumers apply some of the consumer electronics buying tendencies to something like a vehicle, because I think that intersection is getting closer all the time. Yeah, I agree with you, and I definitely agree with the electronics viewpoint. It's interesting, you know, sometimes I get glitches in my um, HMI system in my car, and it just goes blank. 
It's only done it twice since I've had the car. I've had the car about a year now. It just goes blank. And I get just almost, uh, you know, nervous, a little frantic when it goes blank. If my laptop or my phone goes blank, it's like, oh, I'll just restart it and see if it fixes itself. And normally it does. But when you have to restart your car, it's unex totally unacceptable. So, you know, there's a different grading scale, I believe, with the expectations of electronics in a vehicle versus those that we accept in our personal devices. And it's going to be interesting to see which manufacturer can really, can really bridge that gap and satisfy the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Carla, we're also seeing, you know, the way that people view the vehicle they own is changing because it used to be that what people considered a quality problem was mechanical failures. You know, something broke, something is rattling, uh, and or something just, you know, refuses to work. But, you know, now we can consider poorly programmed software to be a quality problem, right? And how do you even estimate how many problems a vehicle has when they might, they might be fixed overnight via an over-the-air update that was received, right? Uh, so that vehicle never needs anyone to touch it in order to resolve one of these issues. So the way that we evaluate also who makes a good car, you know, which vehicle works well, on what basis do you choose the next one that you buy, we're, we're throwing a whole lot of additional considerations into that mix. Yeah, yeah, just a, a little story, and then I want to change the subject. My car, again, has... Uh, two keys, two intelligent keys, right? And you can program your likes depending on the key and the user. So I, I was gone one time and, and uh, somebody else used the other key. And an intelligent key, when I came back, it took four days for it to recognize me. So my intelligent key, I, I call now my non-intelligent key, but finally it did get its memory back in work. But those four days... I was deciding if I should reprogram everything or what. I rebooted several times, and finally it just, well, I'm awake now. I recognize you. Anyway, let's, let's go to a different topic if we could. You know, the, this morning we awoke to the news of several plants being shuttered, Stellantis, Ford, GM. GM hasn't built anything um, in Kansas City, I believe, Fairfax. since Fair, in Fairfax since September since February, February. Mm -hmm. um, because the chips are being routed other places. We're having one heck of a time with workforce, getting people on the, on the job. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what, what your team is seeing as some of the causes of these workforce issues. And Kristen was just, you know, quoted in the paper over the weekend that she's not at all surprised to see 20%, um, 20% absenteeism. Is that normal? Is that higher than normal? I don't know. Yeah. No, Carla, we're clearly in a unique situation now. Um, and I like the way that you chose the subjects for this podcast because they are interrelated because uh, a lot of the worker shortages are resulting in higher wages. And as you noted earlier, we're seeing now significant inflation. Um, and as you know, labor is a huge input to so many of the goods that we buy. Uh, and so, you know, you get kind of a compound effect um, because it is a time of scarcity in critical resources. So, you know, we talk so much about the semiconductor shortage and how much that's limiting, um, you know, what we build and how much we build. 
But I feel if that weren't there, you know, we'd be talking about shortages of uh, petrochemicals and rubber and other things that would be impacting uh, how much we can produce and where. Uh, and frankly, if that weren't there, then we might be talking about labor shortages and how those things are impacting different plants and therefore those plants go up the supply chain and impact you know, what they feed into. So it really is a time of resource scarcity. Uh, and people are really doing their best to modulate the impacts of this. But at the end of the day, the inflation that we're seeing, I think, has to be very strongly rooted in all of this. Uh, and frankly, you know, I know that the pandemic right now is uh, in a little bit of an upswing because of the Delta variant. But when we look at the actual economic impacts of the pandemic, one thing that we're not seeing now is a change to the fact uh, that the global economy is recovering almost simultaneously. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, so we're seeing a lot of these issues in a variety of other countries as well, you know, because there isn't a case of, you know, economic crisis in one place, you know, basically um, causes resources not to be consumed, and therefore there's more to use in the rest of the economy globally. When everyone is on the upswing simultaneously, you are going to have these scarcity, scarcities. Um, and I believe you can intersect all of these things together to explain a lot of the hardship that we're feeling in the industry right now. What I found really interesting in an, another article I read this weekend, you can tell I read a lot this weekend, it was too hot to do anything else, but I read an article that said over 50% of millennials are seriously going to be looking for a new job once we get through this you know, kind of pandemic. That's 50%. That's a huge cost also for companies. So when we look at this inflation, wage inflation, which isn't going away, um, I, I can't tell you the number of businesses that I see help wanted signs and you're looking at wages of $17, $18 an hour plus benefits plus um, flexible work week. I mean, you see all these terms that you didn't used to see when you saw the help wanted signs. You compound that with 50% wanting to change their jobs. And you know, I, I heard a number at one point, and maybe this number's hogwash and you'll give me a better one, but I heard a number, it costs about $50,000 to hire somebody and train them new. So every time somebody leaves, that's a $50,000 hit right off the bat. I imagine there's variation in that too, depending on the skill set. But, you know, if truly that's the case, 20% absenteeism could become what? And especially in a small, you know, manufacturing company, it, it could be almost, you know, a total collapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so a few thoughts there, Carla. There have also been a number of studies done that um, seem to predict that maybe the resignation problem could even get worse in the fall. Um, but because the theory is that there were employees who, because of COVID, had tons of unused vacation time and then you know long story short they decided to use that vacation time over summer and the warmer months uh, and then as the fall and winter set in we might see uh, a strengthening of this trend before we see an improvement so it might 
uh, be actually about to get worse in terms of the Great Resignation and the number of people that we have leaving. And, you know, what it makes me wonder is, you know, I see more and more of these references. Even just uh, today there was one um, about the CEO of Levi's uh, complaining about them raising their wages because Amazon is paying warehouse employees upwards of $20 an hour now, right? So um, it is getting to a point where people are willing to leave uh, one employer for another because there's kind of a series of companies that are now facing the fact that they have to raise their wages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we used to hear that a little bit about Mexico and manufacturing there, mm -hmm. you know, and how hard it was to retain employees because it was so easy to get a few, you know, incremental points, you know, more money in, you know, a couple of plants over and a couple of plants over beyond that. And I'm wondering if right now in this transition period, as we do seem to be making a shift to higher wages, if that turnover won't be greater, uh, just as people go from company to company based on who is the next to take the leap and raise wages. Yeah, and I see that on the technical side as well, right? For some of those skills that companies need right now as we continue in this digital era, the you know people leaving because they're being paid more, I think we'll start seeing more and more of that, especially if you don't have to move, too, to go along with it. You can stay where you are, where your family is rooted. And uh, you know it seems that companies are going to have to be very open about providing that kind of opportunity um, for people to work remotely, to work wherever they want. Heck, I saw a company that's now saying that you can work a month anywhere you like. So if you want to go rent a a villa in Puerto Rico or wherever, you can work there for a month a year. It's perfectly fine if you're a remote worker. I, I'm not saying anything bad about that. I think in general, it's fine. I think we have to trust our people, trust that they're gonna do what they have to do regardless of their location. You don't need to have eyes on to have people do a good job. But it's really interesting, some of the things that we're starting to see um, come out as companies look for more flexible. And I even saw new ones um, yesterday come out from some smaller companies, companies like ours, where there's an app called, I think it's called Wellable, that helps with stress. A lot of people are feeling stressed these days in the workplace. It helps with um, uh, other wellness challenges you can do amongst remote workers to make everybody kind of feel uh, close together. This company also decided they weren't going to put any PTO numbers. Everybody had unlimited PTO to use as they needed because in these days, who knows when someone's going to be exposed, you may need to stay home. Um, they just felt it was better to get rid of that overhead, get rid of that stress of people thinking, i got to use this up before the year's over, and give people flexibility. So we're starting to see a, a new way, a new way of working as this competition just continues to grow amongst, you know, skilled and unskilled workers. And I, frankly, I don't see an end to it. And, and it doesn't seem to be related to unemployment benefits, at least even when those have started to go away, we haven't seen this race back to the workforce. Yeah, you know, Carla, there are many ways um, in which you can spot a trend and say it was there before, but when the pandemic hit, and all the changes that it brought, that sort of fledgling initial uh, trend became greatly amplified. Uh, and the working from home uh, environment, I think, is one obvious example of that. 
where you know we we'd already had some of these transformations. We already had uh, companies offering unlimited PTO and some of this increasing flexibility. Uh, you know, but it was tending to be more in the tech industry and other industries were slower to catch up. And it really wasn't as widely considered kind of uh, an option for as many, especially uh, kind of older industry type companies. And with the pandemic, I think a lot of eyes have been opened and a lot of trends have been accelerated. And this is a key one. And it's got key implications for automotive as well, because it's gonna change where people live, how many vehicles they need per household, how many miles they drive for commuting and for other purposes. And, you know, if we typically go now from three to four vehicles per household to maybe whatever that family is using, they now need one fewer vehicle. You know, that's an implication for everything from how many we sell to how many parking spaces we need to charging stations we need. And all these trends are interconnected um, and they're all kind of driving each other as we go. So this conversation really kind of, uh, it's interesting to what degree we have one trend strengthening another, uh, but there's really no sign of it slowing down. It just seems to be a cycle that's accelerating uh, the longer we stay in this mode. Absolutely. And, you know, the workforce is affecting supply of product. It's, it's affecting <laughs> how quickly we can get seated at a restaurant. I mean, it, it, there's many things. And I hope that everyone is just being patient because many businesses are, are suffering with lack of workforce. When we talk about supply chain, though, um, COVID has impacted it. Workforce has impacted it ability to unload ships because of workforce in the ports. One thing that I've, I've really been focused on learning more about is autonomous trucking, autonomous drone delivery, um, things that don't require the human to be the transporter, but require the human to be the programmer. And that, again, is an, a skill set that we struggle, we've been struggling with for years and having enough of that knowledge. And then the policy and regulations that surround this are also systems that take a long time, I'll just put it that way, to be able to create those policies. So if we start you know, spending money on research as the infrastructure bill is planning and maybe some of the the reconciliation as well, really starting to throw those research dollars out there. Maybe automation is going to help us get through this. But in the meantime, I don't see an end. Right now we're moving to the middle of 2022. When this started, everyone was saying the middle of 2021. What do you think is realistic? Is it middle of 2022 or if we're looking at building new plants isn't it closer to the end of 2022 carly it wouldn't be surprising to me if in a few months we're talking about 2023 because it really does seem to be a strong trend uh, when we have executives talking about the implications for their company it seems every time i read one of these interviews the timeline they talk about is just a few months farther out and farther out and Given that we're far from the only industry suffering this, it's an economy-wide issue and also a global economy-wide issue, uh, I think that the solutions are really going to come slowly. Uh, and when we you know, put this back 
uh, to the infrastructure bill and other things that governments can do, uh, they all take time. They all take years because, you know, for example, um, if you allot more dollars for certain kinds of education for workers of, of the future, you know, one, it takes a long time before that's even implemented. Two, people have to go through those programs and graduate and enter the workforce. Those are long-term solutions. And of course we need them because these are long-term problems. Uh, but it also tells me that relief is going to be pretty hard to find for this year or next year. Uh, because all these steps take time to actually bear fruit. Yeah, for sure. And let's kind of talk a little, close with a little bit of the inflation that we talked about in the beginning. I and mean, you've already, Bernard, you've already talked about how, you know, the workforce situation, wages, et cetera, are really impacting um, inflation. And we've seen, you know, just supply and demand in general. I mean, grocery store prices have gone up because you can't get the goods there or the delivery there is costing more. And a lot of the, a lot of the big box stores, you know, your big stores are pricing to make up for that. And the consumer is devouring it at the moment. But for some people whose incomes maybe have been shattered by, by the crisis, uh, in, how how long can those of us who were able, fortunate enough to be able to keep our jobs, how long can, can we continue to see this growth? I did see, again, over the weekend, and it was alarming, you know, consumer spending is starting to decrease. We're starting to get people, uh, you know, the home buying spree is starting to slow down, um, even though loan rates are still pretty darn good. But just people are starting to go... Maybe I should wait on some of those big purchases. Is this the start of another potential recession? Is it time for another one? Wow. Considering That's years, great... I mean, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm yeah. not a, an economist by degree. That's you know, uh, but I know that you are, and the team here at Car are wonderful about that. But you know, there are six cycles for recessions. Is it, is it time for another one or at least a steady state for a while? Yeah, well, Carla, certainly, you know, we, if we want to tie this back to vehicle sales and production, we were already forecasting 2020 uh, to be the bottom of a cycle. And of course, the pandemic came and exacerbated that to a much higher degree. So absolutely. But I think what we're also facing now is what is talked about as the K-shaped recovery. Um, that the impact of the pandemic and then now the steps out of it are very different depending on the kind of job you do. And unfortunately, you know, it's those who are in the service sector, those whose jobs are not portable, who, that can't be done from home, uh, that have had the largest negative impact. And right now, you know, those folks are very much in demand when we hear about restaurants and a lot of those businesses having trouble finding people. So, Hopefully, we can put a little bit of an upward curve in that K-shaped recovery for that part of the population. Uh, but I think we also need to tie it into the fact of what does that mean for the automotive industry? You know, one, it means that your cost base for your entire value chain is slowly getting more expensive. Uh, but what does it also mean about the market? Because, you know, right now with vehicle prices topping over $41,000 per average vehicle, um, we're already making kind of a luxury product. And as we talk about electrification and automation, you're adding cost to that product even more. Uh, and with a good deal of the country, 
um, having trouble making ends meet, uh, we have to think about, you know, can the industry really long term uh, be just selling a product that the, only the wealthy can afford? Um, and I think yeah, that's, I think a key that's thing. my worry too, because you know, at forty two thousand dollars average, and many of them are quite a bit over that. When you think about if you have a mortgage and if you're supporting a family, that disposable income quickly goes away. And it's a, I mean, granted, the baby boomers, there's, there's a large population there, but eventually that gets sated. And um, then what? You know, it, it, I think we have to be really, really careful as an industry that we continue to provide affordable options for people. And that may mean a totally different kind of product than we're used to designing and building. So I'm really interested to see how some of these new energy vehicles and city cars and come into being. And again, if our regulators can find a way to quickly get them eligible to be driven on the roadways, and if we can change our roadway rules in urban areas to be able to accept them. Heck, I was on the road yesterday, and a golf cart was going down the side of the road, and it was a road that's a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. I don't know if they had an ORV license or not, but you're going you're gonna to start to see more and more of that. I'm seeing more and more of it around the lake areas, around vacation areas, with people using golf carts or other gators or things like that to go up to the local market or the you know the local um, cafe whatever so you know are we going to be able to move fast enough for these alternative forms of transit yeah carla you know this has always been an industry that relies on economies of scale uh, and one of our issues with these electrified and automated vehicles is that we don't yet have that scale uh, and then that becomes critical in making them affordable for the people who are struggling um, so, you know, one thing that I'm happy to see um, is, you know, now with the emphasis on making purchases from home and having them delivered, um, there's a greater intersection than ever between conventional consumer light vehicles and delivery vehicles. And there's more parts commonality between the motors and some of the powertrain parts and the batteries than there was when these were purely internal combustion vehicles. So I do like the fact that at least in one way, the economy is giving us a reason to increase economies of scale uh, by sharing supply chain with light vehicles and delivery vehicles, medium duty and the like. Um, and I think that I'm happy to see it because it's one of the ways that we get to keep this product hopefully affordable to a larger chunk of the population. Yeah, absolutely, for the social equity and the democratization of mobility. Well, now that we've solved the problems of the week, <laughs> I think uh, we'll, we'll put an end to our podcast. But I think, you know, we've kind of just touched the tip of the iceberg. And I'd like to continue talking about this inflation and what it means and workforce and what it means. And let's continue to keep everybody posted on the infrastructure bill, because in order to even come close to meeting President Biden's executive order and you know, to be able, you know, to, to manage the payback for what the automakers are putting forth in electrification, we need to have um, these things work hand in hand. So we can continue to talk about that some more, too. We'll so, keep our finger on the pulse. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>